Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. How are you doing today, Dave? I feel like I should give a traffic report, given that it's the first day of school uh, here in Bernie, Texas. I think first day of school, probably for most of the counties around us. So my my drive in to tape the podcast was a little bit delayed. Okay, but uh, the, the traffic goes something like this: uh, I-10 is fairly clear uh, in between Bernie and San Antonio, and then you get off the road and you wait. Uh, but you don't wait that long. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, you have to toughen up a little bit if you're a Texan and you're talking about traffic, um, you experiencing it and, and us experiencing out of the East Coast and the West Coast. That, that's real traffic. Right? Yeah. Well, for a guy who's just come from L.A. and previously lived in New York City, I, I, I'm guessing you're prepared to handle a little bit of traffic. I was okay. It allowed me to have three more sips of my coffee before I got here. So, okay. No issues at all. Never hurts. How are you doing? Other than well, your uh, Red Sox are, I think, uh, going down the drains. Yeah, that's not good. So going into the trade deadline, you know, first place, two games ahead of Tampa Bay, nine games ahead of the Yankees, sitting pretty, top of the division. You know, it's, it's been fun. No one really expected that this year. So it's been one of those seasons that you just kind of enjoy the ride because you were hoping for 500, maybe a little better than that. And it looks like it's going to be maybe a division-winning team. And who knows what happens in the playoffs. And then all of a sudden, we're 3-11 and 11 in the last 14 games. Five games behind Tampa Bay now after last night's debacle. And uh, only two games ahead of the Yankees. And, and that's, that's got me very much concerned because, you know, our registrar at Kings is a big Yankees fan. And whenever we meet, you know, we have a little Poor bit guy. of back and forth on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, uh, Frank, you know, the CFO, also another big Yankees fan. So... You know, I've been doing okay. Whenever you're in New York City and you're a Red Sox fan, it helps for the Red Sox to be ahead. But, you know, next weekend, or sorry, next week, three-game series in New York. Yeah, that doesn't go well. I'm going to be hearing it. So huh. I'm, I'm a little concerned, um, you know, looking forward to the end of the season. But it was a fun ride through July, so I have to remember that. Whatever happens, you know, we, we still have that. And looking forward, there's some reasons for optimism. So, Yeah, I'm not so... Uh confident about their trade deadline pickup of Kyle Schwarber, who immediately was put on, or maybe he was on the IR already. It's not, not yeah. the type of person who's going to come in. You can't even play. It's yeah. hard to help the team. So, right. Our, yeah. Our two big pickups, Schwarber, and then, you know, Chris sale was implicitly, uh, you know, the big right. starter and he's supposed to start Saturday. So if he's good, that, that could be a big help, but coming back from Tommy John normally, uh, the first few months are, are, are kind of mediocre. So I'm not expecting great things from him. So, yeah, you know, we may be finding our level, unfortunately, and, and turn out to be a, you know, 85 to 87 type of win team, which is kind of what I hope for coming in. So, uh, again, just kind of enjoy the early season ride. And, and if it ends up in a flop, well, 
we'll hope football season goes better. So it's a lot of despair, Matt. There's just been <laughs> 14 games. Yeah. All right. Well, we better move on. Um, not everyone's a Red Sox fan or interested in this. We may get some more uh, harassment out of this, though, unfortunately, from uh, emailers and, and such. But let's turn to our required reading, Dave. And we're moving along in book one of the politics. Uh, today, we're covering chapters four through seven. So why don't you give us a bit of an overview and, and get us going here? So as you saw, if you've been following along with the reading, the section that we cover uh, for this podcast is uh, book one, chapters four through seven. And you can see right away that it's going to be a, a very controversial uh, subject. Uh, one of my former teachers who uh, I would turn to uh, in a in a snap for anything Aristotle, just a, a brilliant uh, scholar of Aristotle, uh, Judy Swanson, writes the following about the chapters that we're going to cover uh, for today. Uh, for historical and political reasons, Aristotle's discussion of slavery has become perhaps the most well-known and controversial part of the politics. Whether or not he deserves his reputation as a defender of practices commonly associated with slavery, the reader can decide, but not judiciously without consideration of Aristotle's empirical observations and the theoretical generalizations he derives from them. So what we like to focus on are what are Aristotle's empirical observations with regard to master and slave, ruler and ruled, and what theoretical generalizations does he derive from these observations? But I think to do so that we have to go back to the beginning with a little bit of a review, not, not a long review, but just to remember here that Aristotle begins the politics by talking about states and communities and communities being established uh, for some good. So mankind act in order to obtain those things that they think are good. They do so well uh, when they act reasonably or their actions are based upon reason. Uh, they do so poorly when their actions are not. But when you turn a little bit further here, some people really uh, go in the wrong direction with regard to how you achieve good through proper actions, uh, because they fail to recognize that there's a difference between types of rule, that the type of rule that you see, say, in the household between parents and children is different than the type of rule uh, that you see within an established state based upon a constitution. Uh, but Aristotle uh, wants to take up all of the particulars and all of the types of rule. So he gets into the subject of uh, ancient slavery, which was a, a common practice uh, in the ancient world. So let me turn it back to you, Matt. And if you had to put in a nutshell what Aristotle tells us about ancient slavery, what's the most important question that he's asking with regard to slavery? And how does he begin to go about an answer to that question? Well, I think the fundamental question is whether slavery is grounded in nature or, or merely in convention. Uh, is it something that's established by men who have power and are able to impose it upon others? Or is there some connection um, between master and slave in, in nature and the practice of slavery, um, whether it's as, as practiced in in Greece, or or at least some theoretical possible practice of slavery, so I think that's 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 the big question, and and the method he's going to go through is to go through the different claims I think that that ground 
that master-slave relationship and, and evaluate those in, in the light of nature. So one claim is that slavery is natural, uh, that there are individuals who have been born into this world uh, with uh, a certain orientation. Uh, but he doesn't stop there to just say, okay, that orientation is one's skin color or that orientation is uh, one where one um, comes from geographically or, or any of those other factors that uh, often played a part in the institution of modern slavery. He'll talk about the, the nature of a being. Does a being have uh, the, the ability right, to rule over himself or herself? Or is that being dependent upon another? And is that being better off kind of living and working within a condition, um, organizing the actions or having the, um, the actions of one's life organized by another? So one example that I would always bring up in class, because as we've just said, this is a very controversial subject. Are there individuals who are human beings who you would grant absolute dignity to as human beings, but if you were uh, observing them in a certain circumstance, you would say that at that moment, they are not free men, they are enslaved. Can you think of a type of person like that, Matt? Well, I think you could say, uh, let's say somebody who's um, addicted to alcohol or something of that sort, right? Somebody who's in a situation where their their actions seem to... Um, be contrary, even probably to their own version of what they would like to be doing right? because of the addiction that they're suffering from. Exactly. And in that situation, there are two uh, instances where rule is misplaced. Uh, in the one instance, the body rules over the soul. And in the second instance, the passions rule over the intellect. So you, you see that in the case of the individual uh, who suffers from an, an addiction to a drug, right? The body is ruling the soul, the appetite is ruling the reason, and bad decisions are made. So in, in that situation, we don't look at that person and say, oh, let them rule themselves, right? They're fine. Let them make decisions for themselves. Oftentimes, what you'll try to do is you'll try to intervene on that individual's behalf so you can get them to a state where their body doesn't determine all of their activities, right? And they, they were able to see the unreasonableness of a life, right, in, in which they are enslaved to the drug itself. And I think you're seeing already just some fundamental differences between this understanding of, of a kind of enslavement, which is a, a fair description of, of what we've described here in somebody who's suffering from an addiction and, and the actual institution of slavery as we think about it historically practiced, right? So if, if there's a, a context in which a person is enslaved and that it would be a, a good thing for them to have people help them to escape from that, that's a very different thing from a person saying, uh, you work and I eat and your children after you uh, as far as the generations exactly. go, because I want the benefit of your labor. I don't want to have to pay for it. Yeah. And I think he's also uh, doing something interesting here. He's, he's introducing this concept of hierarchy that just seems so foreign in our modern vocabulary, that there is a, a hierarchy of things and that you ought to uh, want the person who can rule well ruling. Uh, and you ought not to want the person who cannot rule ruling because if the person who cannot rule is ruling, uh, then they're going to take uh, that community in the wrong direction. But if you have someone who can rule ruling, they'll probably take you in a, 
a better direction. And you even look at the example of within the family and the question of hierarchy within the family. Matt, you have children. Do your children determine what the Parks family do on a day-to-day basis? Do your children determine what their bedtime is? Do your children determine whether or not they go to school or not go to school, how they're schooled, et cetera? Or do you and Rachel make those determinations? Do you and Rachel rule over the Parks household? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and yet we do that with a view toward their good and recognizing, you know, as they get older, right, we have one who's about to turn 14 and one who will tell you is five and a half, you know, she's five, nope, not five anymore, five and a half. Um, and they're in different places, right? So you're preparing those children as they get older for self-government. The, the institution of slavery as historically experienced was about a master exerting power over a slave for the master's good. And that's not <laughs> what, what happens when a parent exercises authority over a child, right? That the goal is the good of the child. And obviously you can do that very badly and there's abusive relationships like that, but the general orientation of the parent and the reason for that leadership is not because the parent is powerful and therefore has a right to assert that power over the child, but that the parent has the foresight and the virtue to guide the development of that child well for that child's good. Yeah, and hence the most problematic, I think, passage within what we read for today or paragraph of what we read for today, which comes right at the end of part four of book one. Aristotle writes, the master is only the master of the slave. He does not belong to him. Whereas the slave is not only the slave of his master, but wholly belongs to him. Hence, we see what is the nature and office of a slave. He who is by nature, not his own, but another's man is by nature a slave. And he may be said to be another's man who being a human being is also a possession. And here's why I find this problematic. And I wonder, Aristotle being, uh, I mean, supremely intelligent, probably would see the problem here as well. He's already identified and distinguished the human being at the beginning of the politics as one who possesses logos or thought or speech. He doesn't say that some human beings possess logos, thought or speech, but the human being as a human being possesses it. And that distinguishes us as human beings from animals. So if we possess those things, how is it that we can be the possession of another like an animal is a possession of a man? Right. And I think where Aristotle's theory at least leaves room for that is in the application to individuals. And this is one of the, I think, fundamental weaknesses of every non-Christian account of human equality. Um, and I, you know, I wrote a, a chapter in a book on Rawls a few years ago on this very topic. And the question of whether you can give an account of human equality that's not grounded in Christian anthropology. And my answer to the question is no. Because what happens is every account, when you get to the individual, depends upon your ability to operationalize some quality, right? To actually exercise reason. So, so we know that in any group of human beings, there will be people who have greater intellectual abilities and lesser. There's a sort of a natural, normal range, and there's people outside the normal range on both extremes. And so, if you look at an individual, and you sort of each individual has to earn their place in the human family. Then, then some will, will not meet the mark as, as it's set up by 
by whether it's John Rawls or Aristotle or whomever. And so I think this is where the, the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, right? The human beings are intrinsically made in the image of God settles the matter and, and establishes a foundation for a principle of human equality that's solid in a way that these other accounts of this are not. Because you're right, he, he talks about reason. And of course, human beings do have reason. But what do we say about the unborn child, right? How much reason does an unborn child have or a person of diminished capacities, right? If we begin to talk in that language, we can easily imagine, or a person near the end of life, do we start drawing lines and saying, well, this person can't really exercise that quality. So in some sense, they're not really human. All, all non-biblical accounts of the foundation of equality, I think, fail because when applied to the individual, they depend upon that individual measuring up. And some individuals, at least at some stages of their development or, or stage of life, will not measure up, whatever the standard might be. Yeah, and you won't always have a philosopher king like Aristotle doing the measuring. So right. he can write in a place that it is clear that the rule over the soul, over the body, and of the mind and the rational element over the passionate is natural and expedient, whereas the equality of the two or the rule of the inferior is always hurtful. Well, it's clear to Aristotle, right? It's clear to someone who's seeing things clearly, but clearly we don't always see things clearly. Uh, hence, we need a different rule that we can apply in the case of how we judge human beings. And I think, as you mentioned, uh, the rule in which we're all image bearers of God and, and then all worthy, right, of human dignity, right, must be the rule right, in which we understand and apply equality uh, among all, all human beings. And, I, and I, to be fair to Aristotle, Aristotle sees this problem because he says, you know, most people, when they look at the world, they're not saying, ah, oh, that person's got a fine soul or that person, boy, that person's rational capacity. That's really, he's on fire rationally today or <laughs> she's on fire, right? We do the opposite. We look at someone's body and we're like, man, has that person got a great physique? They must work out. So most of us judge the world and judge one another by physical attributes rather than the attributes of the soul or the attributes of the intellect. Never mind that when we uh, defeat another, when we fight another in a battle or a war, we tend to believe what? Well, we were virtuous. We had the right on our side. Hence, we ought to have defeated um, this group of people. And because we've defeated them, we're then going to be able to enslave them or they're going to they're, we're going to rule over them, which has been a lot of human history as well. So, yes, it's nice to have a clear sighted philosopher stating a principle of right rule and wrong rule. But as we know, and not all our philosophers. Yeah, I think this is where we bring in a second piece of Christian anthropology. So, you know, the idea of human beings made in the image of God, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, turn the page to Genesis 3, the fall. And so we see right there in the description, even of uh, the relationship between Adam and Eve, right? That he's going to want to dominate her. She's going to resist his leadership. There's going to be that tension. So this is the difficulty, right? We, people that exercise power uh, are not philosophers merely who, who judge a matter based upon its merits, but they're individuals who have an interest, which takes us back to last week, interest and duty, right? There's, there, there may be a right way of exercising rule, but if that runs contrary to one's individual interest, we shouldn't have a lot of confidence that duty will win out. This is a fallen world, and uh, even the wisest among us are, are fallen as well. And so, you know, as you look at 
ancient accounts of, of the virtues of aristocracy, right? The rule of the wise well it makes perfect sense. Um, but remember, the wise have an interest too. And, you know, historical aristocracies are often the landed gentry, and they have a financial interest in their status. They have a social interest in their status and are likely, whether conscious of it or not, to put the thumb on the scale in their direction. University faculty never do such a thing when it comes to contracts or anything like that, correct? That's a good thing, right? Because we are all purely <laughs> philosophic when it comes to these matters. Wow. Okay. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> but yeah. in, you know, just to finish this off with Aristotle, the, I mean, it's really interesting here that he will make the case, right, that there is such a thing as natural inequality, and hence it ought to inform how we conceive of rule. But he'll also make a case here against artificial inequality or a conventional inequality that's not based upon nature, but that's based just upon that, based upon interest or based upon not seeing something correctly. So uh, Aristotle is, like many others of his time, a believer in the natural order of rank among mankind, but he sees how human beings have taken difference and abused it, taken difference and set up institutions or established institutions uh, that tend toward injustice and that justify that injustice based upon an inequality that's not real. Yeah. Now, think about application here. There was a, a great article by uh, Greg Wiener, who's a political science professor at, at Assumption, I believe, uh, that was entitled, This is No Way to Rule a Country, uh, published on Tuesday in the New York Times. And you know, the context is the moratorium on evictions that was extended by CDC fiat, essentially. Uh, the Congress had the opportunity to act, didn't have the votes, and that was that, it seemed like. But then, uh, even though the president had said he didn't have the authority to do this, he nevertheless decided to do it anyway. And sort of admitted this is probably unconstitutional, but it'll take a while for the courts to decide that so we can get away with it in the meantime. And so Wiener kind of works through all this and makes some observations on the separation of power system and how it's really failing in general in our in our country, but how this particular instance of that shows that in, in that it was the Congress who wanted the president to act and the president who wanted Congress to act. And of course, the whole point of the separation of power system is to create a dynamic tension where, where Congress is asserting its authority, uh, the executive branch asserting its authority, and, and, and good results come from the, the tension between those two as ambition counteracts ambition. Uh, instead, a lack of ambition on both sides. And of course, the further point he makes is that under our system where there's a lack of ambition, what that defaults to is presidential leadership. And so he goes through, as the piece goes on, um, the ways separation of power system is broken down, the ways that we've got at least some elements of a parliamentary style system where the president is sort of prime minister, and yet we still have the Congress and the courts, of course, separate from the Congress. So we've got kind of the structure of a separation of power system without the ambition counteracting ambition. We have the practical experience of something of a parliamentary system without the benefits that come from the party discipline that's incorporated into a, a parliamentary system. And so it's kind of a worst of both worlds situation. And so just going to read the, the last couple of paragraphs here, Dave, and get your thoughts on this. I think there's some nice tie-ins to what we we're just talking about with Aristotle and, and, and the nature of good rule and natural rule. So he says this, the problems with abandoning the separation of powers may be difficult to see if one supports the current president. 
and of course, almost everyone reading the New York Times <laughs> would be in that category. But it should not take much imagination to contemplate why you wouldn't like having the bulk of national powers being exercised by a president with whom you disagree. Presidents now sit atop vast administrative apparatuses. They could easily abuse this power, such as by rewarding friends and punishing adversaries. The point for Montesquieu and Madison was not whether they actually did, but whether they could. And the ability to abuse power often leads to the abuse itself. And he's referring back to earlier citations from Montesquieu and Madison talking about tyranny as where the separation of powers has broken down, whether any action follows. It's, 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 it's structural tyranny, in essence. The last paragraph, the deliberate adoption of a parliamentary system would still entail these risks, but it might at least have conferred some of the system's benefits. As it stands, with Congress unwilling to unite against even a physical assault incited by the president, we have maintained the empty shell of the separation of powers around the core of a partisan system. The result is a system capable of abusing citizens, but not governing them. It would be difficult to conjure a worse combination. It reminds me of uh, my short political existence in New Hampshire uh, at the end of uh, (laughs) the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, where justice was taking place within New Hampshire, where we had a court uh, take up uh, a case, which court should do, uh, and adjudicate uh, the matter, which court should do. But within that adjudication uh, was a requirement of the legislature that they legislate something, which is not what courts should do. So uh, when I was running for office and, and was elected and then in office, I and, and many others made the case that the system works when courts adjudicate, legislators legislate, and executives execute the law. Uh, it doesn't work when one branch of government takes over the powers given to another. And it doesn't work when, for partisan reasons, if I'm a legislator, I'm say, let the court decide the matter. And I remember a great conversation that I had with a, a Democratic lawmaker in New Hampshire, where I said, well, you're really happy that the court is doing this in the case of education funding. But what if I, uh, a pro-life proponent, put into place a court that required the same relative to abortion rights? You wouldn't sit there and say, well, this is a wonderful thing that the court's adjudicating and defining for the legislature what the legislature should do. So I don't know whether or not that person was totally convinced, but you begin to see the problem of how the separation of powers break apart uh, when it's partisanship uh, that is the umbrella over all things, rather than actual that ambition, counteracting ambition. And really, as a legislator, upholding the dignity of your power to legislate or as a court upholding your power to adjudicate or an executive likewise. It's just not the system that we have in the country. And you could see it kind of boiling down to this, I think over the last 40 or 50 years, where there's been an ardent effort to move away from a separation of powers uh, by uh, by emphasizing uh, partisan ends, uh, the desire to get a certain outcome, no matter what you have to do with our, our current administrative structure. You go back to Aristotle's, you know, unregulated hierarchies. Here's a situation where bodies rule over souls, where appetites rule over reason. Right? Things are yep. turned upside down. And at the end of the day, that leads not to happiness and flourishing the good as he begins his politics, uh, but to the converse. So that's, I think, where, where we are. And uh, I love that Wiener is saying this and others have been saying this. I think we tried to argue this in our essays on the Federalist and 
kind of in going through democracy in America, you know, but sometimes you feel like because the power of the immediate is so strong, has such a hold upon people that sometimes you're shouting into the wilderness. So, so on that cheery note, <laughs> so yeah, have a great weekend. You know, enjoy, enjoy your, I hope your gardening goes well because it's all falling apart. You know, all right. you know it's funny because my parents, when they comment on the age episode, they're saying, well, you know, you, it's, it was, there's something positive there. I, I appreciate the positive. So we have to end with something positive for my parents, at least. Uh, so let's turn to Tocqueville's crystal ball. <laughs> okay. Maybe the NFL will give us some reason to cheer if the Red Sox and politics haven't. So we're going to go through two divisions each week, the next four weeks and give, give some predictions. Um, you know, why not? Right. We, we, we can, we can pund it as much as anybody else. So uh, this week we're going to do AFC West, NFC West, of course, AFC West home of the chiefs, uh, Super Bowl runners up last year, 14 and two NFC West last year, Seahawks 12 and four um, shout out to my, my mom's team there. And uh, you know, real tough division uh, in the NFC West. So let's look ahead. 17 game season. Can't get used to that just yet, Dave. You know, 12 and five just doesn't sound right. Eight and nine, pretty ugly. But let's let's start with the AFC. Well, the Chiefs have done a lot to kind of beef up their offensive line. Everyone who saw the Super Bowl saw that Mahomes was up against a lot, even as as incredible as he is. Um, it was rough. And I think they've done a good job. I, I just think that you can only get beaten up so many times when you play the position like Mahomes does. He's, he's just amazing. As I say that as a Patriots fan, he's just incredible. So um, I think those Knicks add up. Uh, I still think they win the division. They go 13 and four. Uh, my surprise for the division uh, is, is the chargers. I think that uh, that young quarterback Herbert is, is amazing. I remember seeing him in the Rose bowl a couple of years ago. I think that chargers team overall has a lot of talent uh, it's, it's had talent for a while, but they've been uh, injured a lot. But I think this year they make it into the playoffs um, with an 11-6 record. And then I think the Broncos and Raiders, I, don't, I just don't think that they're in good shape overall. I, I still don't think the Broncos with, without a quarterback, even though they have other pieces there, are, are going to do well, especially in that division. And I just I don't understand the Raiders like many others. I, I, I like John Gruden. I think he's a great announcer. But at the end of the day, a lot of their um, – transactions just seem to be kind of out of Al Davis's playbook where <laughs> where's that guy coming from or, or, you know, why trade these people or this or that. So I think this may be a season where uh, Gruden's in trouble in that new stadium, five and 12, uh, and they're looking for an replacement pretty soon here. Yeah. That 10 year contract is a real albatross hanging around the Raiders neck. A lot of money that they've already committed to Gruden, but yeah, they're going to have to see some improvement. I agree. Uh, you know, the Raiders are, and Broncos on the bottom of the division. I think the Raiders might be a little more of a 500 team. I've got them at eight and nine Broncos, seven and 10. There's a lot of talent on the Broncos team. And if they ever get a quarterback, they could easily, you know, be an 11 and six type of team, uh, you know, or better. I mean, in, in another division, uh, certainly better. I think chargers also will improve. Um, I've got them at 10 and seven chiefs, 14 and three, you know, the beat goes on. All right. Great. So, how about on the NFC side? So here, as you mentioned, it's a really great division top to bottom. And it's kind of hard because these guys have to play one another, but then the other games they're playing, whether it's the conference rivals or uh, their own division um, competitors, they've got a rough schedule uh, ahead. 
So here I'm going to say that the Rams with Matthew Stafford uh, make it to the top of that division. Uh, they won't win 13 games. I, I have them in at 12 and five, but they're really going to play well. Uh, I think a lot of the leadership that's been brought to the Cardinals, uh, I think will also allow them uh, to make the playoffs at 11 and six. And I think that uh, the Seahawks will have a, a disappointing season for the Seahawks. I mean, Russell Wilson is, is amazing, but uh, there were some contract disputes there. And I, I just wonder whether or not there's a little bit there lingering. Uh, and I don't see them playing as well uh, this year, at least for the Seahawks. And so not in the playoffs for the Seahawks. And then the 49ers, I think, are going to be the real disappointment. Uh, I can see a real issue here. If Jimmy G suffers at the beginning of the season, maybe goes one or one and four. I think there's going to be a temptation there to look to the young guy, Trey Lance. Then, you know, every first year quarterback is going to have some games where they just blow it games where they play great. So I, I have the 49ers under 500 at eight, nine. Okay. Yeah. My, my uh, predictions are very similar. I agree about 12 and five for the Rams, you know, solid team, you know, great, great leadership coaching situation. Uh, Stafford has got some great weapons there in terms of uh, receivers and so I think there's good reason to think they're going to be uh, another, you know, top season um, an improvement on last year. Seahawks, I agree, not, not quite as good. I got them at 11 and six. So that's, you know, should be a playoff team. Um, still defensive challenges there. You know, the old Legion of Boom is, is no more. And a lot of offensive talent. But like you say, there's just kind of some rumblings there that make you wonder if this season might be a little bit of disappointment. Uh, Cardinals, you know, Kyler Murray is, is fantastic, getting better. He's got a lot of talent around him as well. But again, the defense just doesn't seem to be quite up to the mark. So I'm a 500, nine and eight situation. And 49ers, uh, you know, you said it is, is Trey Lance going to be the starter uh, early in the season? If he does, probably some struggles. They're going to get some people back, back from injuries. They can't be as, as hard hit as they were last year when it comes to injuries. So they're certainly not going to be six and 10 again. But, you know, another division could be a 10 and seven type of team, but I think eight and nine is, is about right for them in the NFC West. All right. Well, we've got more divisions to come and uh, more conversation, hopefully a more uh, cheery note next week, but we hope you'll enjoy a, a good weekend and a good week. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon.